as I look at myself in the mirror, I, which I hate to do, and I may not be alone in that, but I have always felt that there's something that's not right in me. Maybe I could use the word broken, something broken in me. And you know what? I had great parents. You know, I had great parents. I, I was not an orphan. So, but I still felt, though, that there was something missing inside of me. And for years, I couldn't say what that was. I couldn't really identify that. I just knew that something was missing. I had a great childhood, but something was wrong with me. And I often felt shattered. So no matter what I did, no matter what I bought or purchased, I didn't feel better. No matter what I ate, and it was a lot, <laughs> no matter any of those things, no matter uh, who I was in a relationship with, none of that mattered. I, I, nothing I could do would fix it. I just couldn't put all the pieces back together. That's the way I felt. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe that there was something blank inside, on the inside of you. Maybe that feeling that you have deep down, in, down inside that something is missing, that something is not all together, that something is broken for you. Have you ever felt that way? And, and here's the truth, I think. Sadly, the truth is this. It is true. We have been broken. And it turns out, though, that all of those feelings that I had, and maybe that you have as well, ultimately they all go back to this broken relationship with God. And that broken relationship with God left us as spiritual orphans. A broken relationship with God, it leads to missing pieces in our lives. Now, the writer of the book, titled The Orphan Train, she said this, you have to find all the pieces to find peace. And you know what? I think she's on to something. So the, um, this series, that Orphan Train, that we're talking about, it's actually based around a real, a real event. This is a real historical thing that actually happened, um, and really not that long ago. So back in the uh, Mid-1800s through, and, and to some degree into the early 1900s, there was a very serious homeless problem in New York City. Specifically, uh, there was a problem with orphans. There was a, a very, very serious issue that was ongoing in that city. And as a result of that, a couple of the larger orphanages in New York City <clears throat> began the process of taking infants and toddlers and children and teenagers and they would put them on to trains. That's where kind of that orphan train. They would put them onto trains and they would take them to Midwestern and to Southern states. And the purpose for doing that was very simply trying to get these kids a home. Now, what they would do uh, before they would go into a city in, in the Midwest or in the South is they would plaster that city kind of um, as, as almost like a, a, a pregame type thing. They would plaster that city with flyers, uh, letting people know that, that they were coming. And then they would also take out ads in the local newspapers, and they would basically be saying, hey, they wouldn't put it like this, but they'd say, hey, the orphan train is coming to town. Come and pick out a kid. Just show up and pick a kid. It's, um, in our mentality in 2019, it's a pretty that, um, extreme thought that this actually happened in this country not that long ago. It was almost really very similar to if you were to go to the kennel and pick out a dog. You know, you were going to pick, pick an animal, pick a dog, pick a cat. 
Um, and it, it, there was some similarities, a lot of similarities to that. And this train, it would roll into the station, it would pull into the town. Uh, after they had been promoting that they were coming, the children would be dressed in, in some nicer clothes, they'd be cleaned up, they would be let out onto the platform, or maybe they would be taken uh, to, a, to an opera house or to a theater in the town, and they would literally be lined up for the purpose of being chosen by a family. Just pick a child. Come in and pick a child. And uh, many of the people, unfortunately, that would come and look for, uh, would choose one of these children, were actually looking for employees. They were, they were looking for labor. Uh, some were looking for children of their own, but uh, the ones that weren't chosen, they would be loaded back up onto the train, and then they would go to the next town and do it all over again. And it was this constant process. And the ones that were selected at these, uh, at these locations, they would go home with the family. A few papers might be signed, but it was really a relatively simple process. There wasn't a lot that went into it. There wasn't a lot of, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's. It was pretty simple. It was a legal agreement but it was a far cry from what we think of as adoption. It was a far cry from what we think of as adoption here in 2019. The family would agree to give the child a place to sleep. They would agree to feed the child. They would agree that the child would be allowed to go to school for a period of about four months. And all of that would be in exchange for work. And that's really what it was. It was almost an indentured servitude process. But unfortunately, there were really no uh, standards that enforced those things. I mean, the standards of care, really the families were not held to any type of standard of care. And so very often, most often in fact, the relationship that was developed from this transaction, and maybe that's the best way to describe it, this, this transaction the relationship that came out of that transaction would be a very awkward, sterile environment. It, wouldn't, it would not be the loving home that we might think of today. It would uh, Typically, the children and the family would be kept at arm's length. There was almost a line of demarcation that was placed in between the two entities. So it was a very cold, really employee-employer relationship more often than not, as it pertained to this orphan train. In fact, it was so much so that way that there was a trial period. You got a free trial offer, you know, like we might think of today. And there was a trial period where uh, for any uh, reason at all, the child could be returned. Maybe they didn't like the way the child acted. They didn't like their attitude. They didn't think that the child produced enough in terms of their level of work. Maybe the child ate too much and it just cost too much. That'd be hardly, you know. Uh, maybe the child didn't, for whatever reason, did not fit what they were looking for. The child could be returned for any reason at all. Now, the child had absolutely zero, uh, zero say in the matter. It was a very one-way street. So again, this isn't really adoption as we understand it in 2019. Very, very different. Very uh, below the line that we think of as adoption. It was more of a business agreement. Um, some of the contracts, in fact, like I've already mentioned, they actually called the children indentured servants 
and they would be indentured to that family until they were 21 years old. Kind of looking back in historically the 17th and 18th centuries, that was where so many people that came to the United States actually came as indentured servants. This was very, very similar for these children that were adopted. Now, the unfortunate children in this scenario would land, which was the majority, unfortunately, they would land in homes where maybe the questions that were asked might be, what is best for the farm, or what is best for the family, or for the factory? There would be some fortunate children that would land in loving homes where the question, what is best for the child, might be asked. But by and large, adoption today is a very different experience than what the orphan train experience was in the mid to late uh, 1800s into the early 1900s. Today, of course, the adoption process is very serious. It is very precise, and it is a very strict legal agreement. Anybody that has ever gone through that adoption process, or maybe you know someone that went through that adoption process, you can attest, you can bear witness to that, the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, and it is typically a long, drawn-out process. Very different in 2019 as compared to what we're talking about today. And in fact, interestingly enough, the concept of adoption that we understand today is really much more in line with the concept of adoption in the time that the New Testament was written. In fact, the Roman style of adoption was uh, very similar to the style of adoption that we understand today. Of course, the first century when the church really began to, to, was, began to grow and, and all of the New Testament was written in the first century, it was written in a time where people were under Roman rule. They were under that Roman uh, rule in Rome, but it was a massive, uh, just a huge empire. And that Roman concept of adoption was very different from this orphan train concept. It was a very precise legal agreement. You say, well, what difference does that make? Why are we talking about the way Rome went through this adoption process? It's because it was into this climate that the New Testament was written, and it was specifically into this climate that Paul writes everything that he penned, all the letters that he wrote. He wrote it in this context, and context matters. Because so much of what we're about to talk about here for just a few minutes, it's revolving around Paul and his usage of the analogy of adoption and how we are adopted by God. And it's important to understand that the analogy of adoption that he understood and the context that he wrote about, very different than the adoption train. It was much more serious. In fact, the Romans were so serious about adoptions that uh, in many cases... An adoption had to be voted on by the Senate. Now, most of the emperors of Rome were adopted into the families that they claimed or that claimed them. So again, the context of when Paul wrote, very important. Adoption was a serious, uh, cross your T's and dot your I's manner. It was, very, it was a legal binding arrangement that Paul was writing about. In fact, um, we read in his letter to the church at Galatia, Paul writes, it's in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But when the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, 
God sent him to buy freedom for, for us who were slaves to the law so that he, speaking of God, could adopt us as his very own children. So Paul is alluding to the fact here that we have and we had then a legal problem. We broke God's law, which means God calls that now sin. And that means that that sin had to be atoned for. There's a legal word for us. That sin had to be punished. There's a criminal sense of the word there for us. And that sin had to be paid for. Another word for that is redeemed. And those are all very legal terms. But Paul is saying that's what had to happen. We had a legal problem because of our sin and it had to be taken care of. Now it was not just a problem. It was a huge problem. But we also had an enormous relational problem. Not just legal, but a relational problem because of our sin and because of our imperfection, we could not be right with a God who is perfectly holy. You see, Paul is describing how our sin separated us from God. That relationship was broken. And it happened all the way back with Adam and Eve. They were separated from God when they chose to sin that very first time. And they passed that problem on to every generation after them. So as we get to the Israelites now, many, many, many years later, they had the same problem. It came from Adam and Eve, but the Israelites, um, they inherited that problem. And we see in Isaiah 59 verse 2 how the prophet is speaking on behalf of God and speaking to the Israelites about that problem. And here's what he says. It is your sins, he says, that have cut you off from God. In other words, the relationship is broken. You're cut off from God. It's a problem. Because of your sins, he has turned away and he will not listen to you. And that very same problem, now that was written to the Israelites, but guess what? That very same problem has been passed on to us as well, thousands of years later. So... What are we going to do? I mean, we have a legal problem between us and God. We have a relational problem between us and God. Because we sin, because we miss the mark, because we mess up, we've got a problem. But God has a plan. He's going to take care of this legal issue, of this relational issue that we have between God and man, between me and God, between Harley and God. And Paul said, as we read just a few moments ago in his letter to the Galatians, he said that at just the right time, God sent Jesus to earth as a man, he specifically said born of a woman, to place him under this same law. You see, at that time, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Timothy, Titus, James, all of those individuals, they lived under the law that God had given to Moses millennia before. And Jesus, according to Paul, was born under that exact same law. And as only God could do, again, I don't claim to understand all of this, but as only God could do, Jesus fulfilled that law for me. He fulfilled that law for Harley. He fulfilled that law for Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the individuals that we know of from the New Testament. He fulfilled the law for all of us. In fact, Jesus himself said, I did that. I fulfilled the law. In the book of Matthew, 
Matthew uh, tells us kind of a, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Matthew's account of Jesus' words. And it, the Bible says, Jesus said, verse 17, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Uh, another word for accomplish might be I came to fulfill or to complete or to finish the law. I have accomplished the law. I have finished the law. I have fulfilled the law. And now something is going to be different. I'm different. Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. And Peter reminds us in his letter, his first letter, 1 Peter 2.22, Peter reminds us that not only did he fulfill the law complete and fit, he did it perfectly. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.22, he says that, uh, speaking of Jesus, he never sinned. He was perfect. Never made a mistake. And because God allowed himself to be born as a man, and he never sinned, he is the only pure, perfect man that has ever lived. Now, I cannot lay claim to that. Harley cannot lay claim to that. None of you, us in this room can lay claim to perfection, obviously, because we mess up all the time. We make mistakes every day. No one had to teach us how to make mistakes. It's not like we came with an instruction manual, and, okay, this is how you teach a child to sin. It just happens. My, my brother and sister-in-law, they just had a, had a baby, I guess about 10 days ago or so now, a couple of Thursday ago, week ago Thursday. But anyway, when Hallie was born... She did not have to be taught, and she will not have to be taught, this is how you sin, because her daddy sinned. I can attest to that. I can tell you. In fact, after the service this morning, after our worship experience this morning, if you'd like to know more about how her daddy <laughs> sinned, just talk to me. I'll tell you everything you need to know. But it just came natural. And she just got how to do it, because her daddy did it, and his daddy did it, and I'm going to tell you about some of that stuff. That's, that's between you and him. But yeah. uh, it, it just happened naturally. But Jesus lived a perfect, pure life. He never made a mistake. He never sinned. He never missed the mark. Which meant, as per God's plan, he was the only one who could pay the legal price that had to be paid to redeem everyone else who had broken God's law. Which, again, we've already, that's everybody. That's all of us. We had a legal problem. We had a relational problem. And the only one that could fix that was that man, Jesus, that came and lived a perfect, pure, sinless life without missing the mark. So as a result of that, our legal issues, our relational issues are resolved. Now, Paul wrote to the church, uh, to the Colossians. Uh, he, he says it, and I love this verse, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says that he, Jesus, um, speaking of Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I, I love that, that wording. As, as a writer, I wish I could come up with something. That made it. Nailing it to the cross. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and he says that for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Paul is saying our legal issues have been taken care of by Jesus. And that also at the same time took care of our relationship problem that we had with God as well. 
And so for those who choose to agree to this adoption, to submit to what God did for us in this adoption process, there are some legal implications because of that. Now, in Rome, just like today it would happen, uh, if you were adopted, a child's name in Rome was changed. And that happens today as well. So the name change happens today. When God adopts us, though, that name change happens too. And here's a little peek at that. At John 15, 15, the writer says uh, that, and this is a quote of Jesus, I no longer call you slaves, Jesus says. So our name was slave, but now he says, no, no, not a slave, because a master does not confide in his slaves. No, he says, now you are my friends. So we went from being slaves, we went from being enemies of God to being friends, to being family, and very specifically, as we learn in the New Covenant, to being God's very own children. What a, an amazing name change that we get. And it's not this sterile, awkward, arm's length, trial period type uh, relationship like Cole described with many of the, the children who rode the, the orphan train. No, it's not like that at all. With us, with our adoption as God adopts us, God, he jumps all in to this relationship. And I mean that literally. God is all in because we, it is described for us in the new covenant that, that God's spirit is sent to live in everyone he adopts. Not just some, everyone he adopts. So if you have submitted your life to God, I am through the work of Jesus, what he did in order to adopt us, then I can say this based upon what I understand in the new covenant, I can say this, welcome to the family. And here's what Paul goes on to describe in Romans in verse 15. So you have not received a spirit of fear. He says, no, no, no. No, not a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. He said, instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now, this was not just a legal agreement that God has with us. No, it's, it's deeply personal for God. That's what's so amazing about this. God does not leave us in the condition of strangers. It's just kind of being involved in his family as a stranger, just inviting you in. No, he doesn't leave us in that condition. He, he actually brings us into the family when he adopts us. He doesn't leave us feeling like we're an unwanted part or we're just a tag along or we're second class citizens in the family um, and he's just kind of stuck with us because he had to adopt us and do something. No, no, he, he doesn't leave us as just kind of this outside part feeling like we don't really belong. No, 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 no. Instead, we see the description that God has poured his spirit into our hearts to give us this experience of being embraced by the family as a wanted part of the family. And he changes our names from enemies of God to his loved children. But you know what? There's also a name change for God in this adoption process. 
there are some legal implications for God as well. Do you know what happens there? This name change for God, it's described in the very next verse. It says, now we call him Abba Father. We now have a new name for God. If you have submitted to that adoption process, and that name is literally translated Daddy, Daddy. That's your new name for God. Daddy, Daddy. Now, God's feelings for us have always been there. God, uh, 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 His feelings toward us have always been loving and, and, and for us. But our feelings for God, they have to grow. Just kind of like an adoption today, you know? Our feelings have to grow. Ours do. God's feelings toward us have always been there. But for us, they grow. And, and the more we know God and the more we know about God and the more time we spend with God, the more that we are going to love God. Now, everything that we've talked about, pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. But this next part, to me, is amazing how God has set this whole thing up. It's, it's so interesting how God set this process up and how things just fit together so perfectly. Because in the first century, in the Roman style of adoption, there were more legal issues um, that had to be taken care of. I mean, it was a very tedious Process. There was a lot of T's to cross and a lot, lot of I's to dot. One of the things that had to happen for an adoption to be illegal, for an adoption to be official, one of the things that had to happen is there had to be seven witnesses to the adoption. There had to be seven people who could say, yes, I heard what was said, I saw what was said. The process was done correctly. That child belongs to that family. Signed, sealed, delivered. Seven witnesses had to uh, speak to that. Which again, context matters so much when you're studying the Bible. Because again, Paul is writing in the first century to first century readers of the New Testament, of the, the New Covenant, and he's writing them and using this analogy of adoption, which they would have understood very well because they lived under Roman rule. So there had to be seven witnesses to this adoption process. And this was actually to protect the adopted child. That was the purpose for the witness. Because what would happen, obviously, is the father, the adopting father, eventually would die. The adopting father would eventually die. And very often, the adoption of that child would be contested. Uh, they would contest whether or not that child truly deserved the inheritance of the father. Does this child truly deserve the money, the land, the business, the name? Do they truly deserve what the father had? Was the adoption legal? Was the adoption legitimate? Very often they would be con uh, it would be a contested adoption at the death of the father. And at that time, when that adoption would be contested, one or more, sometimes all seven of those original witnesses could stand up and could say, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I witnessed it. This adoption 
is legal. Everything that had to be done to adopt this child, it was done correctly. The T's are dotted and the I's are... Wait, I did that wrong. The T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Everything was right. The legal process was done correctly. They did everything that had to be done to fulfill the requirements of the law. So those seven witnesses would say, that child that was adopted by that father into that family, it's legitimate, and it fulfilled all of the requirements that the law gave. So, God keeps our adoption legal as well. In Romans chapter 8, this is where Paul is kind of talking about this, so let's just kind of see where we've been. He says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, he says. Nope. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. Now listen to what he says next in verse 16. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Now that word affirm is a great word. And it describes that. But listen to what else it says. That word also means this. God's spirit joins with our spirit to testify that we are God's children. It also means this. That God's spirit joins with our spirit in order to give witness that we are God's children. I love it when a plan works out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is no accident. So God provides his own witnesses who will step forward and say for this adopted child, yeah, I was there. I was there. Yes, 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 yes. I, I saw it. God paid the price for this adoption. I saw it. This child submitted to God through Jesus. This, God's Spirit says, I saw it. I was there. This is actually a child of God. God's Spirit affirms it. God's Spirit seals it and makes it official. And you know, alluded in the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, both, God's Spirit at times is referred to as the seven spirits. God provides His own Seven witnesses to this adoption, your adoption. He provides his own seven witnesses for you to prove that you did submit to God. To prove that you have actually, really been adopted by God. So when the evil one comes to you, and he comes into your mind, and he says, oh, don't kid yourself. You're, you're no child of God. You're no part of God's family. Who do you think you are? The evil one says to you, I've seen your decisions. I know how you've lived. You're no Christian. I know how you've acted. I know the decisions you've made. I know how you've talked. You've blown it, buddy. Or maybe you do the work for the evil one and he doesn't have to. And maybe you're saying to yourself, boy, I, I have failed so many times. There's no way I'm a child of God I've failed so often. But you know what happens? The Holy Spirit says, <clears throat> wait a minute, 
I was there. You are. I'm a witness. I can bear witness with your spirit. And you begin to realize, well, yeah, I do belong to God. Yeah, I, I am a child of God. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, He is. He is a child of God. He says to you, you, you are. You really are. So when the evil one, who is described as the great accuser, when he wants to come to you, and he wants to come to me, he comes to us and says, no, you don't belong to God. No way. Who, who do you think you are? You, you have way too much sin in your life. You have fallen way too short. There's no way you belong to God. You don't belong to God. And then something in our heart begins to say, yeah, I, I do. Yes, I do belong to God. And that's God's Spirit coming alongside of you and saying, yes, you do. And His Spirit, by the way, in Isaiah, at one point is called the sevenfold spirit. I don't believe that's a coincidence. Now this spirit, this witness that God provides, it works both ways. I think we have a lot of people in the United States that are saying, yeah, I'm a child of God. I, yeah, I am. I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yes, I, I'm a Christian. And they're saying that, but you look around them and there's no one else who's giving witness of that, who's standing up and who's saying, yes, they are a child of God. Yes, yes, it is true because I was there. That spirit is not present. No, no, instead of a confirmation, instead of a witness stepping forward, instead of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you are a child of God. No, no, there's silence from God's spirit because for them... It isn't true. There is no Holy Spirit confirmation. And maybe they think that, well, if I say it long enough, then maybe I'll convince myself that it's really true. But there's no internal conviction that says it really is true. Perhaps they say, well, I must be a child of God. I mean, I go to church all the time. I'm really religious, so I must belong to God. Oh, oh, I, I belong to God, I'm pretty sure. And they're saying it. But if you look around them, they're saying it by themselves. No witness is standing up and bearing witness with them saying, Yes, you are. Yes, it's true. Because I was there. No. Instead, it's silence from God's Spirit because it isn't true. Hmm. I believe that that's different for many of us. Many of us, when we say that, when we say, yes, I belong to God, how do we know that? 
Because God says that we're going to have a sense deep in our hearts. This confirmation, this agreement with God's Spirit that says, yes, I do belong to Him. And so all of that comes to this point this morning. I just simply want to say this. Is God's Spirit standing up in your heart and bearing witness with your spirit saying, yes, you have been adopted. Yes, I have been adopted by God. Is God's Spirit bearing witness with your spirit? And if He is, then I say, oh, that is awesome. But if He's not, and I'm not saying that... Is it just that you doubt from time to time? No, no, because God will answer those doubts with God's Spirit affirming that. So it's not a question of doubt. It's a question of, does His Spirit finally come through and bear witness with your spirit? And if He does not, here's my challenge. Will you submit to God? And we do that because of what Jesus had done for us on the cross. So we submit to God through the work of Jesus, dying on the cross. And that's how we become adopted, by submitting to that. And if you, we call that at Stuttgart Harvest Church, making Jesus or making Christ the boss of your life. And in this analogy that Paul is using, that we're using for this series, it is, we're saying that, yeah, yeah, I've been adopted and Jesus paid the price and I'm submitting to that. But if you are submitting for the first time and saying, Jesus, yes, when you died on the cross for me, that means you purchased my life. And so I am submitting to that and saying, yes, you can have this life, Jesus. It is yours. If you're doing that for the first time today, would you please let us know? And here's how you let us know. Mark that on the back of your connection card where it says, I'm making Christ the boss of my life. For the first time today, I'm really doing that. Before you put that connection card in that bucket, will you please mark that and let us know? Because we have some information we want to get to you to help you get a great start at following Jesus. But here's the second thing that all of this means today for us. I think I can say that we need to begin to live up to our new name. That name that God has given you, if you have been adopted, to live up to that new name, child of God. Doesn't mean you're not going to fail. No, 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 no. But we need to step up our following of Jesus as we pursue him. And it's not out of obligation. It's not out of, oh, i got to do this because after all, I'm a Christian and that's just what I've got to do. No, 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 no. We do it. Our motivation is different. It's out of gratitude for the fact that he chose to adopt us even though we were unadoptable. He chose to adopt us and out of gratitude we say, oh, I want to get close to that Jesus who loved me so much that he died for me and he paid the price for my adoption. And so we pursue him and we chase after him. We need to learn to begin to live up to that new name that he has given us. And here's the third thing I'm going to ask. This week, will you call out to him, Daddy, Daddy? 
And will you spend some time with him this week? Not just on today. Not just when your small group meets during the week. No, no, no. Will you spend time with this amazing, loving father who has adopted us? Will you spend time with him this week? Because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. Let's pray. God, at just the right time, you came and you sent Jesus to be born of a woman. And you described it for him to be subject to your law. And Father, you sent him to buy freedom for us so that you could adopt us as your very own children. And because for all of those who submit to you, we now are your children. And you have sent the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts. And we are now compelled to call out to you, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. Because now we are no longer slaves. No. No, we are your children. Thank you for adopting us through the work of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.